And would you please take out your Bibles and turn to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. And while I give you a chance to turn there, Marty, if you would be so kind as to uh, mute this so that I don't cut. All right, we're back. Psalm 69. We are in a week of preparation for Thanksgiving. And because Thanksgiving is upon us, we are now in the season known as the holidays. Here we are. Uh, I don't know if anybody's gotten mauled at Walmart yet. They're going to, sure enough, uh, on Black Friday it'll happen. But uh, we are in the holiday season. Um, Starbucks has their red cups now. They have their amazing Thanksgiving blend, um, not to be outdone by their spicy Christmas blend. It's an amazing time of the year. I love it. It's my favorite time of the year. Life is good. We have much to be thankful for. But I think, maybe I'm totally wrong in this, I think that when we come to seasons like Thanksgiving, when we come to a time where we just kind of put a smile on our faces, we we can easily forget that there are many in our congregation, there are many in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our communities that are going through times that are trying so much so that it's difficult to thank the Lord for anything that's going on. If you're not there, praise the Lord. And we have reason to praise the Lord. And even in our praises, I'm sure there are other aspects and factors in our lives that we're still struggling through. We're still wrestling to trust the Lord. So the question that I ask my own heart is, what do I do when I've come to a time where we're all supposed to give thanks and I don't see a reason to give thanks? Or I'm struggling to give thanks. Or I'm struggling to praise my God. What do you do when you don't feel that there are any reasons to give thanks? When you don't want to give thanks? When you're simply just stuck looking at the suffering that's going on? How can thanksgiving be offered when you are in the midst of pain or hurt? Is it any good to try and offer thanksgiving when your heart doesn't seem to be there? All these questions, I believe, are answered for us in Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is an honest psalm. It's an imprecatory psalm, meaning that it calls down judgment and condemnation on the wicked. It is a psalm that is quoted almost the most of any other psalm in the New Testament. Jesus loved this psalm. He lived in this psalm. Seven of the verses in Psalm 69 are quoted multiple times in the New Testament, sometimes by Jesus himself. And some of those verses that are quoted from Psalm 69 in the New Testament are part of those imprecatory, calling down condemnation verses. But there's a turn in this psalm that turns on a heart of thanksgiving even when suffering is happening. How do we give thanks in these times? And ultimately, as I believe in your bulletin you have the title of the sermon, the product of thanksgiving. How do we give thanks And what good is it to give thanks in the midst of suffering? What does suffering uh, and giving thanks in suffering produce for us? What does thanksgiving produce? What's the product of thanksgiving, specifically when we are in the midst of suffering? Psalm 69 is a psalm that was written by David. You see that in 
the superscription there in your Bible. Psalm 69 for the choir director, according to Shoshanamin. Um, it's a um, lily or a tune or an instrument, perhaps. But the bottom line is this is written by David in the midst of trying times where he is struggling to give thanks. We're going to break this psalm up into just three different sections as we go through it. First, we're going to see the circumstances that David is in, the circumstances he is in. Then we'll see his prayers. Number two, we'll see his prayers as he is stuck in these circumstances. And finally, we will see his thanksgiving. So the circumstances, the prayers, and the thanksgiving that he offers with just kind of two subpoints under each point. So I'll walk through it with you as we go through it. First, the circumstances. The circumstances. Verses 1 through 3 really tell us what it feels like David is going through. What it would feel like to be in his shoes. He gives us an emotive aspect of what's going on in his life. And he tells us what it feels like to him. Verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. So he feels like he is sinking, he is drowning, he is doomed. Verse 2, I have sunk in the deep mire and there is no foothold. I'm sinking down and there's no chance to be able to launch myself up out of it. I can't do it on my own. If you don't save me, God, I am doomed. I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. I'm sinking under these waters. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched from yelling constantly, God, save me, God, save me. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. He is drowning. He is sorrowful. He is in despair. He is waiting upon God. And God is not acting. God is not moving. That's why he's proclaiming, where are you? He's giving us imagery, obviously. He's not on a ship that's sinking. He's giving us imagery to the, to the aspect of what it would feel like. But he gives us beautiful imagery. It's as if he's on a ship that has gone down, and as it's starting to go down, David can tell it's going down, and he can tell I can't rescue myself. The lifeboats are gone. So he radios in advance to say, excuse me, I need help. We're going down. Mayday, mayday, help. And he hears a response, help will be on the way. And as he's waiting, as the boat is sinking, and he keeps climbing to the upper parts of the boat to try and stay out of the water, and the boat's still sinking and going down, He's looking around. Where is the help? Where are the helicopters? Where has everything that was proclaimed to be coming, that was promised to help me, where is it? Have they forgotten about me? Am I so lost that they can't see me? Where is my help? That's what it feels like. Verses 1 through 3 tell us what it feels like, and verses 4 through 12 tell us why it feels that way. So these are the circumstances. What does it feel like? It feels like he is sinking and he is going to go down with the ship, so to speak. Why does it feel that way? Verses 4 through 12 give us the answer. He starts by saying, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Or in other words, uncountable. Can't count the number of hairs on your head. There are more enemies that are trying to destroy me than I can even possibly count. So he feels like he is drowning. He feels like the whole world is against him. He says those who, are, who would destroy me are powerful being wrongfully my enemies. They're powerful. They want to destroy me. 
and they are wrongfully my enemies. They're against me, but they're against me wrongfully. What I did not steal, he continues at the end of verse 4, I then have to restore. So they're falsely accusing him of something, and David owns up to this. And I, I think this is so interesting. He says, they're falsely accusing me, and it's not that I shouldn't be accused. There are many things that I do that are wrong, and that's why he says, verse 5, Oh God, it is you who knows my folly. My wrongs are not hidden from you. You know I sin, but you know I didn't sin in this way to deserve this kind of condemnation. Everyone's against me. And they're against me wrongfully. The whole world is out to get me. You ever have those days? We call them, oh, it's just one of those days. You just wake up, and you're going through your day, and you feel like nothing can go right. Everything is going wrong. Everyone is against you. And if you're like me, this is the thought that always occurs in my mind. It's about halfway through the day when I've kind of given it a shot. doesn't seem to be changing at all. And I just think, you know what? I should go to bed right now. I should go to bed because I know mercies are new the next morning. So the mercies are gone. They've run out, apparently. Maybe I had one this morning and I used it on my Pop-Tart. And now the mercies are gone. What should I do? Just go to sleep. Good night. I'll wake up with more mercies available. David's in that spot. David's there. He says, God, you know what's going on. I'm struggling. They hate me without cause. Verse 6, he says, May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord, God of hosts. He says, God, this is getting so bad that people that are believers, that are looking at the way that I, as a believer, am being treated, are wondering whether they should stay believers. Everybody around them is saying, See, David believes in the God that you believe in, and that God's not coming to David's help. So you must be believing in a terrible, faulty, false God. He's saying, God, please let them not be ashamed. May those who seek you, middle of verse 6, not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Why? Because for your sake I have borne reproach. All of this reproach is coming. Dishonor has covered my face for your sake. May they not be ashamed who trust in you. I have become estranged from my brother's and an alien to my mother's sons. Why? Why am I estranged? It's interesting to note, there's, there's not much talk in here, actually there's no talk in here of military language. Sometimes we read Psalms by David that are when David is fighting, he's on a conquest, or people are hunting him down to try and kill him. That's not the language that we have here. There, there isn't a military campaign. The language here is brothers and um, that are now fighting against him, family that's fighting against him. It's more likely that he's talking about friends or citizens of his kingdom, people that know him, that were friends of him, that have now betrayed him, people that are turning their back on him. Now he's estranged in his relationships from them. And he gives us the reason why. We studied this in Family Bible Hour. Our fours, right, our motivation clauses, verse 9. Why, why has he become estranged? Why do people hate him now? Why are his friends turning their back on him and maligning him? Because, verse 9, zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who, have, who reproach, you have fallen on me. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So I am bearing your reproach, God, because I love your holiness and your righteousness so much 
that I'm telling people don't do that. That's not holy. That's not righteous. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And because of that, people are saying, chill out. Stop it. You are way too holier than thou. Stop being so righteous. You don't need to do that. And they're starting to get angry with David zealously pursuing righteousness. He says, when I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth with my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. I love how he says that. Those who sit in the gate, that would be the judges, that would be the people that rule the city, that there would be hearings there. So the highest level of people are talking about him and maligning him. And the lowest level of people, the people in the bars, the people in the taverns, the people in the pubs that just hang out and don't have anything to do, the drunks, they talk about him. So every man in between, whether it's the highest official and the lowest um, drunkard in the bar, the name of David is on their lips as they malign him, as they make fun of him, and as they say, your God has abandoned you. Look at his despair. Look at the reason for his despair. You know that verse in verse 9 is quoted in John chapter 2, verse 17, when Jesus is cleansing the temple and his disciples remember this passage and they say, oh, I remember David talked about zeal for God's house consuming him. So too, Jesus has zeal for his father's house that's consuming him. Those are the circumstances. What it feels like and why it feels that way leaves David absolutely hopeless and helpless, save one aspect. He says, I can pray. That's all I've got. I can pray. Number two, we look at the prayers. And there are two real types of prayers here. There's prayers for help and there's prayer for justice. Prayers for help and prayers for justice. First, the prayer for help is verses 13 through 19. He says this, but as for me, my prayer is to you. So as for me, who cares what they do? Ultimately, they are pursuing ungodly behavior. But as for me, my prayer is to you. And listen to his prayer. We need to pray this way. I love his prayer. Oh, Lord, at an acceptable time. So I think I know the right timetable, but you own the clock. You own the timetable. I will trust in your timetable at an acceptable time for you, O God, and in the greatness of your loving kindness. So according to your character, at the right time, according to the mercy that you have for me, answer me. Answer me with your saving truth. We need to pray that way. When we're in the midst of trials, I think normally we start with the end of it. Answer me, God. And sometimes it's not just answer me, it's answer for yourself. Why are you doing this? What right do you have to be doing this? And instantly when those words come off our lips, we know that was a very foolish thing to say. God owns the universe. He owns the world. He made the world. So he has all right to do whatever he wants. And that's why David goes back to his character. He is holy, holy, holy. He is filled with loving kindness and mercy. And so David says, Answer me with your saving truth. Answer me on your timetable. Sometimes God waits a lot longer than we would like. We talk about the phrase, God is never late and he's hardly ever early. And he makes us wait 
Listen to his prayer, verse 14. Deliver me from the mire. Do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. This is where I'm sinking. I have foes. I'm sinking. I'm overwhelmed. Uh, countless, uncountable foes. May the flood, verse 15, of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Answer me, God. Answer me, verse 16, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Answer me because your loving kindness is good. If you answer me, I will receive mercy from a good and gracious God. So please answer me now. Answer me according to the greatness of your compassion. Turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. For I am in distress. Answer me quickly. Oh, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. You know it all. And so this is his prayer. He lifts up a prayer for help. He says, God, please help. And he asks it in such a perfect way, a modeled way for us. But his prayer doesn't end there. His prayer then gets into a prayer of justice, a prayer for justice, verses 20 through 28. He prays for help, verses 13 through 19, and then he prays for justice, verses 20 through 28. So far, David feels overwhelmed by his enemies, and these enemies don't appear to be military enemies. They're personal friends or citizens that are maligning him. David doesn't claim to be perfect. He knows he is a sinner. So in summary... We have King David, not a perfect man, but a righteous man. A man who loves God, who trusts God's mercy for ransom and redemption, who stands up for the cause of the humble, and who is suffering the undeserved persecution of his enemies and God's enemies. And in the middle of this lament, in the middle of this cry for help, he's going to devote seven verses to calling on God to punish these sinners. What we would call an imprecation, an imprecatory psalm. What is an imprecation? This psalm of justice, this prayer of justice. It's a curse. It's an invocation of judgment. In the Near East, there were curses that were written into treaties between kings and nations. If you do this, this will be the curse that will be brought upon you. If I do this, and if I don't do this, this is the curse that will be brought. They were punishments for violations of the treaties. But it's interesting in this context... David brings down an imprecatory psalm, an imprecatory prayer to say, God, judge your enemies. But he's never asking, let me at them. I think of like a Bugs Bunny cartoon, you know, put them up, let me at them. He's never asking that. He doesn't want vengeance so that he can enact revenge and judgment. He's saying, God, you are holy, they are not, and I want you to avenge yourself. And you do the avenging, don't let me do it. There's holiness in this imprecatory psalm. And as I said earlier, the New Testament quotes this imprecatory part of this psalm. A lot of people ask, well, we're supposed to pray for our enemies. And I don't think it's that kind of a prayer that we're supposed to pray for our enemies. Love your enemies. How does this fit? Well, let's read it and then we'll find how it fits. He says this, verse 20. Reproach has broken my heart. I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. So I looked, but they didn't give me any. Instead, verse 21, they also gave me gall for my food, bitterness for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. So they just heap bitterness upon his life. 
He says, verse 22, may their table become before them become a snare. When they are in peace, may it become a trap. I love those two words. He says, uh, a snare is um, a self-closing. And you just step in it and, it and it gets the animal. And a trap is something that has to be baited. You know, you have to put bait in it and then the animal goes into it. He says, they have ruined my table. God ruined theirs. Verse 23, may their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see. Make their loins shake continually. They have made me afraid and ashamed. Make them afraid and ashamed. Pour out your indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. Why? Because they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. And they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. And iniquity to the, add iniquity to their iniquity. And may they not come into your righteousness. May they even be blotted out of the book of life. And may they not be recorded with the righteous. What do we do with these verses? If we had more time... <clears throat> We could go to the New Testament, and most of you have a study Bible, or if you don't, you can go online and look up these verses and see where they are cross-referenced in the New Testament to see that they are not at all in odds, at odds or contradicting what the New Testament teaches. In fact, what does the New Testament teach us? The New Testament teaches us in the Lord's Prayer, Hallowed be your name, thy will be done, thy kingdom come, and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, if you pray that prayer, what are you honestly asking for? If you're asking for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done here on earth, you're asking that the righteous reign and rule with Jesus, and you're asking that the unrighteous be cut off. When God establishes his kingdom in Jesus Christ, when Jesus comes back to establish his millennial kingdom, there are no ungodly people the first second that that kingdom begins. There are none. They are all destroyed in the battle of Armageddon, and evil is vanquished, and Satan is bound. When you're asking your kingdom come and your will be done, you're asking for judgment. If you truly love God and love his holiness, and I know we've talked about this before, but I think that we should revisit it again here. If you truly love God, if you truly love his holiness, which is why David's praying what he's praying, ultimately he's not saying, God, they messed with me, now mess with them. Ultimately, he's not saying that. There's an aspect of that. But I believe the aspect of that is only found as much as David is asking, they have maligned the holiness of God's people. They've maligned godly people. They've maligned the holy name of God himself. So avenge yourself. Your people shouldn't be going through these things that they're going through. Avenge yourself. I believe because David loves God's holiness so much, he hates anything that would oppose it. And that's what true love is. If you truly love something, then you must have hate inside of that love for anything that is going against or offending that love. One commentator says it this way. Devotion to the Lord excludes any loyalty to those who hate him. The psalmist manifests a spirit of discrimination This type of discrimination reveals itself in an evident resolution to keep himself untainted from any relationship with evil. He hates, abhors, and shuns the enemies of God. And another Puritan says it this way, A man who does not know how to be angry does not know how to be good. A man that does not know how to be shaken at his heart's core 
with indignation over things evil is either a fungus or a wicked man. Even God himself in Revelation 2 says that there are things that he loves about the church in Ephesus and it's the fact that they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. They hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now you say, yes, they hate the deeds. They don't hate the people. God loves the sin, hates the or God loves the sinner, hates the sin. Yes, there's truth to that, and I, I believe we've talked about this as well. D.A. Carson, I think, says it best. There is a kernel. He says, quote, there's a kernel of truth in that statement. God loves the sinner, hates the sin. There's a kernel of truth in that. God has nothing but hatred for the sin of the sinner. But God has more than hatred for the sinner himself. So God has hatred alone for the sin. God has hatred for the sinner And God has love for the sinner. All David is praying here is, avenge your name and let wicked people perish. Do what you've proclaimed you would do. Bring justice in the world. I don't think that's a wrong thing to pray. And I think if we say that's a wrong thing to pray, then we're saying we can't pray the Lord's Prayer. Dr. Bill Barrick at the Master Seminary says it this way in his commentary. He says, it is right to pray for the overthrow of tyrants. A biblical view of the value of life depends on divine justice, judgment, and vindication of what is right. It is right to pray for justice on behalf of those who are oppressed. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what will it mean to evil world rulers and wicked people? It is our prerogative to pray for God to avenge wrongs because vengeance belongs to him. And notice again, David isn't saying, let me avenge myself. David's saying, God, avenge yourself. God, avenge yourself. Let them perish. Let their wickedness ultimately find its end. Let them be condemned forever. The psalm turns after this prayer, and it turns with thanksgiving. David has proclaimed his circumstances. He has said, this is the way it feels and this is why it feels that way. These are the circumstances. And in the midst of these circumstances, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for help and I'm going to pray for justice and judgment to come. And until that happens, God, I'm going to thank you. Number three, point number three, thanksgiving. Verse 29. There are two aspects of his thanksgiving. Verses 29 through 33 are individual and verses 34 through 36 are corporate thanksgiving. Individually, he says this, But I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. In contrast to the wicked that David is saying they should perish for their wickedness. He says, I am afflicted and in pain for righteous doing, and your salvation will set me securely on high. It will save me. I will not perish like the wicked. I will be saved. And then he says this, verse 30, I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. A couple things we can observe in verse 30. I will praise. It's a choice. I guarantee you he doesn't feel like doing this. But he will praise. He says, I will do this. It's my choice to do this and I will make this happen. We've talked a lot before about Do we wait to praise God when we feel like it? I think if we were to wait to praise God when we feel like it, we would praise him 
25, 30 days out of the year maybe, if we felt like it, there are times that we have to say, soul, praise the Lord. And then, by God's grace, as we obey, we are blessed. And we start to feel like praising him. And that's exactly what's going to happen in these verses. David says, I will, I will, I will praise the name of God. And this is how I will praise him. I can praise him in a number of different ways. I'm going to praise him with singing. Just picture yourself in the most depressing of times. Picture yourself in the hardest time that you've ever been in your life. When you find out horrible news. And ask yourself, would you be able to sing? Would you even be able to have words? Did you, were you able to speak words of praise in that moment? I remember growing up, we had friends. My parents had friends, I should say. And uh, they had um, a, a child who was, I believe that they passed away from um, SIDS. And at their funeral service, at the funeral service for this child, the, they opened the funeral service by singing, um, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my king, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. To be able to say those words and plead with God, make this a worship service to praise you for your holiness and your goodness when I've lost my child. David says, I will praise the Lord with song. I will sing. I will choose to do this. And in doing this, end of verse 30, I will magnify him with thanksgiving. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. We're going to come back to that. He then says, verse 31, this, praising him with song and magnifying him with thanksgiving, will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hoofs. Why does he say that? He brings in some costly sacrifices and he says it's better just to sing. Why is that? I think there's a number of reasons why that is, but just one. I think I gave that to you as a question that you can dive into on your own time this week. But just one answer for it. You can externally offer a sacrifice. Say God should be praised. And do that externally with an internal attitude and heart of, I hate God and I don't know why he did what he did. But to sincerely and genuinely be able to sing a praise in your heart with thanksgiving to God has to come from the inside, internally, and it has to be somewhat genuine as it's being given. You can go through motions externally. And that's why God says, I would rather have a broken spirit and a contrite heart inward, internally, than have the blood of bulls and goats. For me, obedience in the inmost parts is what I desire more than sacrifice. He says, the humble have seen it, verse 32, and are glad. So he says, I'm not going to take the easy way out. Even though it would be costly, it would just be external, And the humble who see this have seen my whole predicament and how I've responded to it. They're seeing it and they're glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. So back in verse 6, he said that there are people that were struggling to trust in God in this moment. With everything that they're seeing going on, is God there? Is he trustworthy? And here, David says, no, no, no. They're seeing my response to the trials and to the suffering. And now 
they are able to let their hearts be revived and they are glad because they're reminded that God is trustworthy. He is praiseworthy. Why? Verse 33, because the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. He hears them. He loves them. He will take care of them. Even if he hasn't acted yet, he hears. So corporately, that's the individual praise of thanksgiving. But now corporately, verse 34 through 36, let the heaven and the earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it and those who love his name will dwell in it. Much could be said about this very messianic. This is future. This is looking into the future that God will establish Zion. He will save Zion. It's interesting that David would say that because Zion wasn't under attack at that moment, but he's saying God will restore. He will redeem and he will let those who are righteous dwell in his midst. Quite a different ending from where we started. Waters have threatened my life. Save me. I have sunk. I am weary with crying. My throat is parched. Now he can say my throat is parched because I've been singing and praising God. I love him and he is good. Very different ending. What's the turn? Where does this all spin? What's the hinge of this psalm? It hinges on verse 29 when he says, no, I will praise God. I will magnify his name with thanksgiving. I will do that. As we come to a time of thanksgiving, and this verse, verse 30, where he chooses to praise God, again, my question is, what does thanksgiving produce? Why give thanks? It's commanded, obviously, in Scripture, but why should we give thanks? And specifically, if you are in the midst of suffering, why should you give thanks if you do not feel like giving thanks? And again, I just remind us, maybe you're not living in this psalm, and praise the Lord. Maybe you're having a respite from suffering right now. Praise the Lord. But if you are living in suffering, this psalm is for you. If you aren't living in suffering, this psalm is still for you, because you either have suffered, and now you know how to suffer better, and you will suffer in the future. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you will suffer. This psalm is for all of us. And we need to learn, specifically this week, looking at Thanksgiving why thanksgiving is profitable, what it produces. It all hinges on this word magnify. David says, I will praise the name of God with thanksgiving and I will magnify, I will praise him with song and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. That word magnify in the Hebrew, gadol. I love this word because um, in, in Israel, there are these two enormous craters and one is massively bigger than the other one. And so it's called maktesh, which is, the Hebrew word for a crater or a canyon, Maktesh Gadol. It's a great canyon. It's an enormous canyon. And if you want like a really, really, really big canyon, it's a Maktesh Gedolim. And this is what this is called. It's, it's just, there, there are massive parts of this enormous, it's bigger than the Grand Canyon. It's just this massive thing, this crater in the earth in Israel. This is what David is saying. I will Gadol God with thanksgiving. Gadol, it means to intensify, to increase, to make grand, or to make strong. It's used elsewhere in the psalm, Psalm 40, verse 16. I'm sorry, Psalm 34, verse 3. Magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name 
together. Magnify, gadol the name of God. Make it big, make it intense. It's echoed in Psalm 40, verse 16. May all who seek thee rejoice and be glad. May those who love thy salvation continually say, Great is the Lord. Gadol is the Lord. He is big. He is great. He is grand. Psalm 48, verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Gadol is the Lord. He is massive. He is big. And we want to just see him for who he truly is. I love this word magnify. When David uses this word to intensify, to make big, what does he mean by that? We talked in Family Bible Hour about the word justified. And Tim even read the passage this morning, uh, James 2.24. What does justified mean? We need to define terms. Justified can mean um, saved by grace alone, that you are declared righteous by the work of Jesus Christ. And justified can mean, we saw three different places in the New Testament, four including James 2.24, where the word means to vindicate somebody, um, that you were right in what you did or what you said. Same thing is true here. Our word magnify can mean two things. You can think of magnify, and when I think of magnify, I always think of a tele, or, um, microscope. I always think of that first. A little microscope. What is the magnification that a microscope offers? What does it do? It takes tiny things that we can't even see with our eyes and blows them up so that we can see them. Now, that's not the magnification that David is talking about here because he would be referring to God being so small We can't see him, so we'll make him appear bigger than he really is. That'd probably be heresy, so let's not go that route. What's the other definition for magnify? Telescope. It's taking something that will allow you to see, something that is massively bigger than you could possibly comprehend, but something stands in the way between you and seeing it for what it truly is. Look at Jupiter. Jupiter is enormous. I think like five of our Earths can fit in the big red spot on Jupiter. Like, it's an enormous planet, but I can't see it. Even with a telescope, it still looks this big to me. Why is that? Because there's something in the gap between. It's so far away. There are many, many miles between us. And because of that, it's hard to see. That's the word that David is using here. He's saying, I will use praise, and specifically I will use thanksgiving as a telescope to see how big God truly is. There are always two things that stand in the way between us seeing who God truly is, the, the bigness, the awesomeness, the grandeur of who he is. They are sin and suffering. Our sin stands in the way between us and seeing God for who he is. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. If you're pure in heart, you'll see him. If you're impure in heart, you can't see him, both in the here and now and in the future to come. But suffering can also do it to us, right? If we're honest, suffering clouds out his bigness. Suffering, even in this psalm, just in Psalm 69, David has already said, in essence, implied, where are you? I've been waiting for you. So now we're detracting from his omnipresence. An omnipresent God is a grand God. But when we start asking, are you even there anymore? You notch out. You shrink him down. Not omnipresent anymore. Are you good? Holiness, shrink him down. Are you righteousness? Shrink him down. Do you know? Omniscience, shrink him down. 
until all of a sudden you have a God that is small and manageable and made in our image, much like us. Starts to look like us. Maybe he forgot about me. Starts to act like us. Maybe he just doesn't care. And so David says, no, no, no. I'm going to use the telescope of thanksgiving to blow God back up in my own image. I know he's grand, but my suffering has caused him to shrink down in my view. Specifically, I should say, caused my view of him to shrink down. He has not shrunk. He is still grand. So, what does Thanksgiving produce? Three things. Thanksgiving, first of all, produces magnifying God to his rightful size in your mind and in your heart. Thanksgiving produces magnifying God to his rightful size in your mind and your heart. Thanksgiving is a telescope that you use to blow God up in your mind and your heart. The only person that uses that telescope is the person who says, I can't see it with my naked eye. So you humbly have to say, I have lost sight of how grand God is. I need to be reminded. It takes a humble person to use the telescope of thanksgiving. That's why God says in Romans chapter 1 that the unbelieving, cursed generation, the world that does not believe but instead changes um, the image of crawling things for the image of God, the image of God for the crawling things, exchanges natural functions for unnatural functions. God says that person is a person who doesn't give thanks. Though they knew God, Romans chapter 1, though they knew him, they did not honor him as God, nor did they give thanks. Why? Because they were proud. Prideful people cannot give thanks. <clears throat> Humble people cannot not give thanks. They know They know that they are so utterly dependent and they plead with God, help, help, help. So the first product of thanksgiving is magnifying God to his rightful size in your mind and in your heart. But it doesn't stop there. And that's what I love about these verses in Psalm 69. It starts trickling down to others. And that's number two. The second product of thanksgiving is that your own magnified vision of God compels you to proclaim his glory to those around you. Your magnified vision of God, as you give thanks, your magnified vision of God starts to expand. You see him, you're looking into the telescope, and you're compelling others to do the same. It's just like using a telescope. I don't know if you guys have used one before that's actually worked. I know we had these ones like as kids that were probably from the 99 cent store, you know, look at the moon, and you'd look in it, and it's just a black dot, and you couldn't see anything, and um, it doesn't work. Look in a real telescope, and you can see real images of enormous planets or stars or solar systems or galaxies, and you're blown away by it. What do you do? You go, oh, that's nice, and walk away. You say, look at this, look at this, look at this. That's the second product of Thanksgiving. If you truly understand God for who he is, you will start to say, hey, everybody else, look, look, look. He says in verse 32, I have magnified him and now the humble have seen it. I have magnified him him, and now the humble are looking on and they're wondering. And I'm compelled to tell them, look at how amazing God is. Look at what he says specifically. You who seek God, let your heart revive because God hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. He has looked through the telescope and now he's proclaiming, don't despise God. He doesn't despise you. 
Seek him. Let your heart turn to him. That's what Thanksgiving produces. Initially, he was wallowing in self-pity, which is understandable. He was depressed. He was stuck. And now he is, because of his first product of Thanksgiving, magnifying God on his own, he is now able to say, guys, look at God. He is amazing. He is so much bigger than anything we could possibly comprehend. And you who are a prisoner, you who are needy, you can take hope. That's what Thanksgiving produces. And thirdly, finally, the third product of Thanksgiving is that others begin to magnify God on their own as well. They do what you first did. They start looking into the telescope too. They start seeing God for who he truly is and they start asking others, would you come and see as well? Verse 34, let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. Praise and in praising him, you'll magnify and praise him. Please, I want you to know him because God will save us and we will be able to dwell with him. I want you to know him. What does Thanksgiving produce in our lives? It produces magnifying God to his rightful size in your heart and in your mind. As you magnify God to his rightful size in your heart and mind, you begin to ask others to come and see how great and glorious and grand your God is. As you have seen, seen him renewed in his grandeur, you're asking others to come and see. You're compelled by his glory to come and see, to plead with others to come and see. And finally, others begin to magnify God on their own, and the multiplication process begins. This is all throughout the New Testament. This is what Paul prays for constantly, Ephesians chapter 1. Look at who God is, see what he's done. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 does the same thing. We don't have enough time to go through it. The bottom line is this is everywhere in the Bible. Magnify God with thanksgiving because it produces something. It produces a reality in your mind and your heart of a forgotten God, as it were. You have forgotten. We have forgotten how great and glorious he is. And we do have so many things to give thanks for in our body. At this Thanksgiving on Thursday, when you're with family and friends, tell them of the ways that God has answered prayer in your life and in others' lives. Tell them of the ways that God has answered prayer in Clark's life, that Two months he was waiting. He was waiting for two more months to go by and God said, no, I'll give him the job now. Share that God does move and responds to care for his children. He does. That's why we should pray with Paul, with David, open the eyes of my heart, soul, forget none of his benefits. John Piper says it this way. For most people, God is about as important as Haley's Comet. He is a distant, smudgy softball of light in the sky, barely visible because of all of the man-made lights in the city. But that means most people do not respond to God in a way that honors him for who he truly is. He is not as important, practically speaking, as the television. His book, the Bible, is not as compelling as the news weekly. His company is not as stimulating as an NCAA basketball team. Most people say he exists the way that a comet exists. He's out there doing his thing and shows up in our sky every now and then, most often to be criticized for not showing up sooner. But practically, he is simply not in the top ten influences of life from day to day. Now, this is tragic and dangerous. It is tragic because all human beings were created to enjoy fellowship with God and be satisfied by his greatness. It is tragic to see a person be more amazed at a street light than a comet because the street light looks brighter and bigger. It is dangerous because the wrath of God rests on everyone who treats him so disrespectfully. The reason we need a Savior 
is because we have fallen short of the glory of God. We've offended him so grievously that our only hope is in salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have found that salvation because God has graciously called us to himself, for those of us who can say, yes, the Lord saves, revive your heart, rest in him, we must band together and become a church that in reality is an observatory for everyone to come to and see God is great. God is magnificent. And this, this Thursday, may we go and take our observatory to our families, to our friends, and show them how great and awesome and mighty God is. And maybe, just maybe, those of our family or friends who are not saved will see God a little bit more clearly as we magnify him with thanksgiving. And maybe by God's grace, they'll ask, you know what, can I look into that telescope too? And we can start showing the glory of God to those who do not yet see and savor it. Father, we thank you for the gift of thanksgiving. And we pray that as we offer thanks even now, that through whatever season of life we are going through, whether it is suffering, whether it is satisfying and pleasurable, whatever it is, God, we know that we can say it is well. We know that we can say you are good. And so we ask you now in a very real sense to come to tune our hearts to sing your praise that we might magnify you with thanksgiving and leave here just a little bit more aware of how grand you truly are. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.